from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is everything. Jesus is alive. And for that reason, we can come before you knowing that we are heard before your throne because we know that your Son and our Savior stands before you pleading his wounds, pleading his uh, broken body on our behalf. And so, Father, we come before you confidently this morning knowing that you hear us and that you love us as your children. And so, Father, we, we pray that you would just cause the truth of the gospel that Jesus died for our sin and rose again according to the scriptures to be planted even more deeply into each one of our hearts. Father, I pray if there's any here today who are doubting, any here who are pushing back against the message of the gospel, any who are hurting, any who are just confused, that you would make clear to them that Jesus is alive. And that you would show each one of us how this changes absolutely everything. Father, this week we are going to send one of our brothers and, and leaders to the other side of the world uh, to bear witness to this message in Cameroon. And so we pray for Pastor Guy as he leaves uh, on Wednesday to go on this trip. I pray that you would make him effective and that your word would work and that he would be able to see uh, uh, the fruit of the ministry there, and that you would use him and keep him safe and bring him back to us so that he can continue to serve in our midst. 
Father, we continue to pray for our brother Pat as he heals from heart surgery. I ask that you would continue to do what you've already started to, to heal him and protect him from uh, the, um, the complications that he's faced. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to encourage him in his relationship with you as he heals. And Father, we just want to thank you for, for gathering your people this morning. And so I pray that whatever takes place here today would be glorifying to your name and edifying to your people and that you would draw many to yourself as you have promised that when Christ is lifted up, you will draw all men to yourself. And so, Father, it is in his name that we pray. Amen. About two weeks ago, as I was studying in my office, my cell phone started to ring. It was an unknown Texas number. Now, for me, that's really rare because I first bought my cell phone when I was living in Pennsylvania, and so uh, these people who spam you and call you about your car's extended warranty and whether or not you're going to vote for this guy or that guy, they still haven't figured out, and please don't tell them, that I have since moved to Texas. So whenever I get a spam phone call, it's usually from Pennsylvania. This was a Texas number, so I knew it must be for real, and so I answered the phone. Hey, I'm calling from ABC Insurance Company for a Mr. Grogan. Is this, is this him? Yes, you're speaking to Mr. Grogan. Well, the man was calling uh, from the claims department of a car insurance company. I had witnessed a fender bender in the Walmart parking lot, and uh, so this guy was calling to gather evidence in order to assess and complete the claims process, and he asked me to describe what I saw and what I heard. Now, Interestingly enough, you might not realize this about me, but I am no expert on the physics of car accidents. Like, I can't describe for you in a mathematical or scientific way the mass and the velocity and the acceleration and the vectors and all these different things that go into uh, what causes a car to be damaged or a person to be injured. I don't know how those things work. And so I don't think the insurance adjuster called because he needed an expert witness to describe what is scientifically possible or likely. That's not why he called me. Nor, and you probably know this about me, most of you do, did he call me about my mechanical knowledge. Like if he wanted to know what is it going to take to fix the vehicles that were involved in this fender bender, I am not the person that you would want to talk to about that. I don't know what the financial impact of that accident is. Okay, so why is this insurance company wanting to talk to a guy who knows nothing about accidents and nothing about repairing vehicles after they've been in an accident? Why would he want to call me? Well, it's very simple. The issue isn't what is scientifically possible. That's not what they were trying to find out. The issue is not, well, what is the financial impact going to be? What are the implications? The, imp the, the issue is simply, what happened? What happened? That's what he needed to know. And so he needed to talk to me. I was an eyewitness to the events that occurred on that day. When multi-billion dollar insurance companies want to know where to allocate money in the case of an accident, they stake their decisions on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Did you know that? There's no better way to learn what happened than to speak with someone who saw and heard and experienced the incident in question. When the justice system is deciding whether or not to lock a criminal in prison for the rest of his life, 
and an eyewitness to the crime is available, their testimony under oath typically carries much more weight than any other type of evidence. They look for the eyewitness testimony of people who were there. Today, Christians the world over are celebrating in a particular way the most important historical event ever to occur in the history of mankind, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. We confess and believe that this man, this human being, died, lay in the tomb, and then came back to life with a new and indestructible body, a body just as real as yours and mine, a body of glorified human flesh and bone, a body still living today. And if it's true that Jesus really rose from the dead, if that is historically true, that changes absolutely everything. If Jesus died and his so-called resurrection is a mere legend, if it is a lie, if it's a myth, then that means his existence is a meaningless blip and his teaching is a monstrous hoax. See, it all comes down to the question, did it happen or did it not happen? The resurrection of Jesus is not a scientific question. It's not primarily a theological question. It's not even a philosophical question. It's a historical question. Did it happen or not? So this morning, I would like to invite you to consider this question, and I hope that you can see from our passage today that the testimony of the four Gospels is not only believable, it's not just plausible, it's strong, it's convincing that Christ is risen from the dead. And then what I'd like to do is to take a few minutes to ponder if that's true, if that's the case, then what does that mean for us today? So with that being said, consider with me in the first place the authenticity of the resurrection. The authenticity of the resurrection. Uh, now before we really begin, we need to recognize that the plausibility structures, the way that we think today, uh, the things, the structures that we carry around involve a set of unfounded assumptions. This is the way that we normally think, and we need to kind of shed these things before we can really get into this question. You see, for the most part, we have a lot of confidence in the scientific method in our day and age. I mean, we've seen the results of science. Uh, you might have a disagreement with somebody else about what constitutes science, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, of course, over the last two years, the whole thing is, it has, the debate has been surrounding uh, modern medicine, which people are telling the truth, which people are not telling the truth, and that sort of thing. You can debate about that all day. But nobody debates whether a combustion engine works. Nobody. I mean, you just get in your car and you drive off, right? That's the results of science and technology. Nobody debates whether radio waves carry information. We just turn on our radios. Nobody debates whether it's possible to transfer energy from coal or natural gas to the electrical outlet in your kitchen where you can plug in the blender and turn it on. You just plug it in, right? So we all live in an age where we have a lot of confidence in science and technology, and we're really suspicious of anything that seems to contradict the conclusions of scientific inquiry. And so it's tempting to look at a historical question like whether or not Jesus rose from the dead and merely rely on science in order to answer that question. But here's the problem. What, what we need to do is not be anti-scientific. I mean, there is no contradiction between science and faith. No, we just need to recognize the, the limitations of science. This isn't a scientific question. We don't use a scientific method to determine whether something happened in history. We use a historical method. 
for example, how do we know whether the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941? How do we know that? Is it some scientific method that we follow to determine that? No, there's no scientific experiment that you can do that will determine whether or not that happened. What you do is you do some historical work. You look at the history. You, you, you speak with eyewitnesses. You examine the evidence from history. And if we apply an historical method to the question of the resurrection, we learn that there's very strong, there is incontrovertible evidence, historical evidence supporting the claims of the New Testament. Let me just list a few for you this morning, and there are many, many more. But consider, first of all, the, the identity of the eyewitnesses. Think about the identity of the eyewitnesses. Uh, verse 1 tells us that Mary Magdalene and another woman named Mary arrive at the tomb before dawn. According to Mark's gospel, if you read Mark's gospel, he mentions another woman by the name of Salome, uh, probably just not known to Matthew's original audience. But all four gospels agree that the very first people on the scene at, uh, on the Sunday morning of, of Jesus' resurrection were all women. Now think about that for a moment. That is a very important historical detail. And nowadays, thankfully, whether someone is a woman or a man doesn't impact whether or not their eyewitness testimony is believed. I mean, thankfully, we live in a society where it wouldn't really matter. But according to the laws of ancient Judaism, a woman's testimony was considered irrelevant in a court of law. It's true, uh, Roman law allowed for women to give testimony, but Jewish law did not. And so what that means is, the fact that the, these gospel writers are relying on the testimony of these women, instead of, uh, instead of making up some men who uh, were supposedly there, shows me, even though that that might have made their case easier for Jewish men to dismiss, that this is actually what happened. Like they, they talked about these women being there, not because this whole story is made up, but because those women were actually there. If it were all made up, I mean, they would never have said, well, the women were there first. They would have said the men were there. Notice as well, these women are present for each event of Jesus' final week. Luke makes it clear they had followed Jesus to Jerusalem from Galilee. They were there when Jesus died. They were there present when Jesus was laid in the tomb. And now they're present before sunrise on the morning of his resurrection. In addition... Uh, the evidence suggests that these women were well-known by the gospel writers themselves and their first audience. Uh, there's a uh, really important book pu uh, published by a New Testament scholar named Richard Baucom called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, in which he shows uh, through historical research how ancient people were very careful and meticulous in the ways in which they considered the testimony of eyewitnesses. See, we, in our modern era, we have a tendency to think kind of snobbishly toward people of the past. Like, hey, they probably were just so easily tricked. But that's not the case at all. They were very careful. In the early years after Jesus died, there were literally hundreds of eyewitnesses available to anyone who wanted to find out whether Jesus really rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul talks about more than 500 people who had witnessed Jesus' resurrection. More than 500 people that they could have talked to all those years later who could have given eyewitness testimony to the fact. When I was in Bible college, uh, the, the people I worked with, they often had uh, sort of a almost a sick fascination with trying to stump me. I guess they just didn't get to talk to a lot of Bible college or seminary students. 
And so often, whenever they had an objection to the Bible or to Christianity, they would bring up those objections to me, and we would kind of get into it. And uh, in one case, I worked with a young lady who had grown up in a Roman Catholic family. She had attended a Roman Catholic high school, and uh, she'd become a skeptic after reading Dan Brown's popular novel, The Da Vinci Code. How many of you remember Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code? You remember reading that? And at the time, you know, for certain people, that was so earth-shattering to read that novel, fictional novel. And, and one of the objections that she raised was that the Gospels had been written decades after the events that they described. We can't trust the Gospels. We can't trust the New Testament because these documents were written so much later than the events that, that are described therein. How can we trust what's written? Isn't it sort of like a game of telephone where one person whispers a sentence to the next person and then that person whispers to the next person and that person whispers to the next person. By the time you get to the end of the line, uh, you have a, a message that's nothing like the original message. And, and so this is what she said, but what she doesn't understand was that the way that news was shared in ancient culture was much different than that. It's much more like, like the conversations that we have around our dinner table at home. Uh, and, and you guys can confirm this with, with me, right? Austin tells a story, and what happens if Austin tells the story and he shares a detail that you don't think is quite right? What do you do right then and there? You correct it, right? Hey, that, it wasn't like that, Austin. No, it was actually more like this, and this is the way that these things worked in ancient cultures. How, how many of you, your dinner table is kind of like that? You're telling a story about what happened, and you don't get the details quite right, and somebody jumps in and says, okay, no, 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 I, I need to correct that just for the sake of being correct, right? And this is the way that ancient cultures worked. There's this community of the faithful, more than 500 eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, and it's not like they're whispering this story from one person to the next. No, they're all sharing their experiences together. And the entire community is confirming or denying the things that happened so that just about anyone living in the known world could verify whether the claims that they were hearing were in fact true. By the way, this is why the gospel writers put pen to paper when they do, because the eyewitnesses were beginning to die away. And so the apostles are recording these things. People like Mark or Luke or Matthew, they begin to take that testimony and they record it in writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the identity of the eyewitnesses is strong evidence for the historical reality of the resurrection. Now think about as well the experience of the eyewitnesses the experience of the eyewitnesses. Uh, they saw the empty tomb. They saw the angel. They saw Jesus himself. They even touched Jesus, according to verse 9. Uh, they worshiped him. They took hold of his feet, we're told. Uh, they heard his instructions, according to verse 10. Uh, the apostle John makes much of this decades later when he says, excuse me, in 1 John, he says, I'm, I'm proclaiming what we've heard what we've seen, what our hands have handled, what we've touched, what, what we've seen with our eyes. Even early on, heretical sects like the, the, the Docetists, motivated by the conviction that all physical matter is inherently evil, they said, you know, matter, things that are physical, they're evil. So Jesus must not have really existed in a physical body. He must have just seemed like he had a physical body. And the apostles were right there. These eyewitnesses, they came in and they said, no, 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 we touched Jesus we bowed at his feet. We touched his feet. We've considered the identity of the eyewitnesses, the experience of the eyewitnesses, but consider as well the unreliability 
of opposing testimony, the unreliability of opposing testimony. Matthew is unique among the gospel writers in that he addresses this rumor circulating among Jewish people at the time of writing. Uh, So put yourself in the sandals of these guards. They work for the chief priests. They had one very simple job, guard the tomb in case anyone comes and tries to steal the body and and, uh, make up a story. So, you know, just stand there, guard the tomb. Obviously, these circumstances were exceptional. They had swords and shields to protect themselves against grave robbers. They were not trained, they weren't equipped to defend themselves against an angel. And so you can kind of forgive them for fainting with fear. But here's the problem. If the reason they failed is because of a work of God, then the chief priests and the Pharisees would have to believe in Christ, but they've already decided they're not going to do that. And so the leaders need these soldiers to come up with a different story. And, and the, the, the problem with that is that the soldiers uh, know that if, they, if word gets out that they've fallen asleep on the job, they are, they're going to be risking not only their reputation, but their life. So these priests, they dig into their pockets and they pay these guys off and they make the promise that if the governor finds out, they'll smooth things over with him too. Uh, Soldiers in ancient times, they didn't make a lot of money, so this must have been attractive to them. And as they began to think about that, I'm sure they realized the alternative. Either you accept what we're asking you to do or you will be disappeared. They had the power to do that. So they took their money and they did as they were told. Now, we're really just scratching the surface here. The identity of the eyewitnesses, the experience of the eyewitnesses, the unreliability of opposing testimony, all this shows that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. But the strongest historical evidence showing that Christ is alive is underscored in the final event described at the end of this chapter. So consider with me the costliness of the church's mission. The costliness of the church's mission. Uh, This last chapter of the gospel, it skips over weeks in Jesus' post-resurrection life in order to get to a brief but very important meeting on top of a mountain in Galilee, miles to the north of Jesus' empty tomb. At this meeting, Jesus commissions his disciples to complete a mission to bear witness to his words and works and to invite others to follow him. And here's the thing. Think about this. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, These men, these blue-collar guys, just normal guys, they actually, they're all from different family backgrounds, they're all from different walks of life, different political viewpoints, and when Jesus tells them, I have authority to command you to go and to make disciples of all the nations, here's what happened. They actually went out and did what Jesus told them to do. In other words, these guys actually believed that the very person they had spent years following, the man that they had eaten dinner with, the man that they had walked the paths of Galilee with, was no longer dead, but everlastingly alive. And they believed it so strongly that when the chief priests and the elders arrested them and threw them into prison, they didn't back down or change their message. When the mob stoned Stephen, one of the first deacons of the early church, and they could see his mangled body bloody on the ground in front of the temple, they didn't back down or change their their message. When they were beaten, when they were disowned, when they were cast out of the synagogue, when they were 
standing trial before the great ones of the earth, when they faced the sword, they didn't back down or change their message. They never changed, not for an instant, because they knew what they saw. They knew what they heard. They knew what they had touched, what their hands had handled. And that took everything they might have experienced in the ensuing years and relativized it. It's like, I'm not just talking about one or two radical members who had convinced themselves that this had happened. All of Jesus' disciples went this way. Every last one of them suffered unspeakable pain for the testimony of the risen Christ, for bearing witness to the reality that not in a dream, not in a vision, not in their hearts, but in reality, Jesus was alive. So think about that for a moment. Even the most militantly atheistic scholars of Jesus' life, they admit something must have happened. There is no other explanation to the to the way that these guys acted. False messiahs were a dime a dozen in first century Palestine. Every one of them was captured and killed, just like Jesus. But when the imposter died, their followers dispersed, and the movement came to nothing. Not so with Jesus. And why? Because Jesus is alive. So they went to prison, and they thought, they can throw me in prison, but I know something they don't know. I know that Jesus is alive. They can beat me, but there's something they don't know. I know that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, again, we're, we're only scratching the surface. If you're doubting whether this is true, there is plenty more than, that, that could be said. And so I would invite you to do a little bit more historical work yourself, like dig into the scriptures. Go to the very first primary sources of, of the events that happen, and you do that research on your own because this question is so important. Did it happen or not? But I hope you realize that if it's true, if it is in fact true that Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything. It demands a response from each and every one of us. If we accept that Jesus rose and then we do nothing, that we do so at our peril. And so, with that being said, I move on from the authenticity of the resurrection to the implications of the resurrection. The implications of the resurrection. See, the ultimate question is a historical question. But our answer to that question is going to impact everything else. It's going to mean something. And I have to say, just as, as a note of sort of personal experience, uh, the historical reality of Jesus rising from the dead, it's been sort of an anchor in my life uh, in times of doubt. I, I wish I didn't have to admit that this is the case, but there have been moments in my life of just extreme doubt and confusion and frustration and groaning and questioning, faltering faith, weeks or even months when I just couldn't bring myself to really feel like I was a member of the family of God. But when I could get it fixed in my mind to remember Jesus rose from the dead. It was like a little pilot light in the furnace of my heart. You know what I'm talking about? Like even though the furnace isn't firing, even though there's something wrong, the fuel of my faith is still there. The dark night of the soul is eventually going to come to an end. There's a hope for me. There's a future for me, for me in my doubt and in my discouragement, for me when Satan attacks and accuses me in all the ways I've fallen short. For me, that little light is still flickering because I know Jesus rose from the dead. What about you this morning? Is that little pilot light burning? 
Do you know that Jesus is alive? You say, well, you know, I'm kind of working through some things. I don't know if the Calvinists are right or the non-Calvinists are right. And that's a really important question. But listen, it's not the most important question. The most important question is, do you know that Jesus is alive? Like, I'm not sure whether the earth is a billion years old or billions of years old or just a few thousand years old, and I'm really struggling with that. And that's a really tough one, and that's an important question, but it's not the most important question. The most important question is, is Jesus alive? Say, some of these politicians, they're saying they follow Jesus, but I just can't see that given the decisions that they're making in Washington, and it's really kind of messing with my faith. And that's tough. That's a struggle. But listen, the most important thing is, is Jesus alive? Say, when I prayed really hard last year for my niece to beat cancer, she didn't. God didn't do what I asked him to do. I'm suffering. It hurts. I'm having a hard time trusting a God who can allow this sort of thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we weep with you. We grieve with you. We want to be there for you. But friend, even that suffering doesn't change the most important question. Do you know that Jesus is alive? Because if you know that Jesus is alive, then all these other things, they start sooner or later to kind of fall into perspective for us, right? Like, let me tell you a few of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you keep that little pilot light flickering, then here are some of the ways that the burner is going to light and, and warm your heart and light your pathway forward and keep you going in, in your faith. Here, first of all, if Jesus rose from the dead, that means that he is the living Lord. He is the living Lord. Here in the United States, we ask, you know, I wonder what the founding fathers would say about this or that issue. In your family, you might ask, you know, what would grandma have wanted us to do with the house? What would my dad have wanted us to do with this money that we're investing? There are theologians who try to apply the teachings of Martin Luther or Karl Barth and philosophers who channel the thinking of, of Hume or, or, or Sartre, psychologists they borrow from Jung or Skinner, but all those important towering figures and all those people, even in your own family, they all have one thing in common. They're gone. They're not here anymore. They're dead. And, and so whatever they used to care about, whatever they used to write about, Whatever, they use, how, whatever influence they used to have, they don't have any staying power to bring that influence to bear anymore because they're not here anymore. They're gone. But not so with Jesus. Jesus is the living Lord. We aren't accountable to his memory. We aren't accountable to his theological heritage. We are accountable to him directly. He hears our prayers and he weighs each idle word. He sees the hidden service and the sacrifice and he looks at our acts of lust and rebellion. He's alive. He's active in this world. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's praying constantly. He's pleading his blood and his wounds and he's advocating for us this very second. He is the living Lord. He was dead, but now he's alive forevermore. He may be physically absent, yes. You remember what he told his disciples, though, before he went away? He said, it's better for you that I go away. Because I'm going to send the comforter, and that's what he's done. He sent the Holy Spirit into the church, into the lives of believers. 
He sent his spirit into the world to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then what does he do? He makes this promise. He says, if I go away, I will come again and I will bring you to myself. Jesus is the living Lord who is soon returning, bringing his recompense and renewing the redeemed. So be encouraged. Don't let, any, don't let anybody else make you think for one second that you're accountable ultimately to them. You're not accountable to them. You're accountable ultimately to Jesus Christ. He's your Lord. We're his servants, not another man's. His opinion is the only one that matters. Second implication of the resurrection If Jesus rose from the dead, that means his death can bring life. His death can bring life. Death is our greatest enemy. It's our most solid certainty. Nobody beats death. It always gets its man. You can't undo death. You can't escape it, but Jesus killed it. I mean, he absolutely destroyed death. There are... There are a few examples in Scripture of people coming back from the dead. There's a a, a little boy in the case of Elisha. Uh, There's this little girl during Jesus' early ministry. There's Lazarus uh, in John chapter 11. Uh, But all those people grow old, and they eventually die again. Their, Their bodies decay, and they wear out, and they pass away. But Jesus' resurrection is altogether different. He is the only one who defeated death. And that means his death is a kind of death that can lead to life for us. Uh, You see, death is not the way that we were made. Like we use language that makes death seem more pleasant and natural than it is. It's not natural. It's not what we were made for. God made human beings in the world to bring him glory and share life with him for eternity. And what happened was we broke God's commands. We rebelled, and the result of that is the curse of death. But what happened was Jesus came into the world, and even though he didn't earn that curse, even though he didn't earn the punishment of death, he took it in his own body on the cross so that when he was hanging there, it was like when Jesus was nailed to that cross, all of my sins, that whole sentence of death was nailed on that cross with him. And we know that it was finished. We know that it's done because it was not possible for him to stay dead any longer. When the payment was made, he was raised from the dead. And so we know because Jesus is alive, because he rose from the dead, that his death has the, has the ability, has the power to save us and to bring us into life. What I'm saying is that if you receive this truth, if you believe on his name, then it is possible to know, to know that your sins are forgiven, that your curse has been taken away, that it's all been nailed to his cross and killed with him, and that just as he is alive, so can you be in this world. If it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, then it is also true that his death can bring life only believe. Consider thirdly that if Jesus rose from the dead, eternity matters way more than the present. If Jesus rose from the dead, eternity matters way more than the present. Like Jesus' resurrection totally changes the value of literally everything. Do you remember that song? I'm sure you do. John Lennon's song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. 
And we don't have to really imagine that hard anymore, do we? His little thought experiment is playing out on a grand scale throughout Western society, and look at what it's doing. Despair, unbridled greed, uncontrolled anger. Our kids, just a few weeks ago, our kids had to spend an afternoon hundreds of yards away from their school building because of a bomb threat. And, you know, that was a little nerve-wracking, but we've all almost accepted that that's kind of the new normal for us, isn't it? You know why these things are happening? It's because for a greater and greater number of people, life means nothing. You're born, you eat, you sleep, you get all you can out of life, and then it's over. You're done. That's it. And I want to tell you that there is a man who was born in Bethlehem during the reign of Caesar Augustus 2,000 years ago who today is more alive than any of us can imagine, unshackled from the decay and the corruption of the world. And that reminds me, this life, this short life is not all that there is. Eternity matters way more than the present. And you know what that does when I realize that? Here's what it does. It dignifies my decisions. It takes every decision that I make and it reminds me that decision matters. Every last decision you make is going to have an impact in eternity on you and everybody your life touches. You cannot place a value on the words that you say and on the things that you do. They will never stop reverberating in, into eternity. They are pricelessly valuable. Your decisions have dignity. They matter. They are important. You know what else it does? It dignifies your decisions, but it also relativizes our difficulties, doesn't it? Like it makes our difficulties, it puts them in perspective because they're short, they're temporary, they're not going to last forever. Paul tells the Corinthian believers the sufferings of the present are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us in our eternal future. I say, Jake, you don't know what you're talking about. I, you don't understand what I'm going through, and, and maybe that's true. I'm sure that's true. But Paul knew what he was talking about. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He had, he had had his share of grief and loss, and he looked out onto the near future, and he saw more suffering to come. And he says, it's not even worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory. And I don't mean to minimize your suffering. That's the last thing I intend to do. But as much as that grief and that betrayal and that, that chronic disease, that abuse that tears you to shreds, as much as those things hurt, I'm telling you that the day is coming for those who believe in Jesus when in comparison with the glories previewed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all those things are going to seem light and momentary, and they will, they will be occasions of thanksgiving and joy in eternity. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then eternity is way more important than the present. Our decisions are dignified, they matter. Our, our sufferings and our difficulties are relativized. Fourthly, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that means that what you do for Christ matters. It matters a lot, not just a lot, an infinite amount. Think about how God has worked in your life. Who has he sent into your life? What, has it always been the person that everyone would expect? Say, well, actually, no, it was my second grade teacher that had a greater impact on me than anybody else. 
I mean, do you really think she knows how much of an impact that she had on you? Or maybe it was a boss or a coworker or a Sunday school teacher or a parent, just normal folks following Jesus imperfectly but faithfully, and you can't deny their faith rubbed off on you. How long is that going to last? How long is that impact going to last? Till the day that they die? No, way longer. It's going to last forever. Jesus is alive. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, and all those who believe are going to join him, which means that the impact that that person has had on you is going to last for all time and even beyond forever. And so if it's true that your older brother or your second grade teacher or the guy in your community group has been used by God to ignite faith in your heart, then is it possible that God is using you in ways that you don't even know about? Which means that the person who led you to Jesus is also having an impact on the person that you've influenced and the person that that person influences and on and on it goes down the line. And each one of these people is going to last forever. You say, well, I can't sing well or preach a sermon. I don't, know how, I don't know how to explain theology. I'm not able to communicate as effectively as others. I'm not as useful to God as that other guy over there. I've never been on a missions trip. I'm just not good enough. My life isn't making that much of an impact. Let me ask you a question. Who gave you the abilities that you have? Who gave you the spiritual gifts that you possess? You think he made a mistake? You think he loved you less? No, he knows what he's doing. This is part of living by faith. Living by faith is I believe what Jesus has said, even though I can't always see it, and I know that because Jesus is alive, that what I do for Christ is not empty, it's not in vain, it's not worthless, it's going to have an impact, and that impact is actually going to be infinite because all of us are going to live forever somewhere. So what I'm saying is don't give up. Don't let the enemy tell you that you are worthless, that your labors don't matter, that you're not useful to the master. That is a lie. Don't let comparison with others get in the way. Don't let some grouch tell you that you're in the way and you need to get out of the way, all right? Forget that guy. He's not your Lord. You don't report to him. You report to Jesus. Maybe you need a little breather. Maybe you need to catch your breath. Maybe you need a trainer to wrap your ankle in an ace bandage or something like that, but then get off the bench and get back in the game because what you're doing makes a difference. It matters. See, it's the truth of Jesus' resurrection life that certifies the authority he claims in our passage. And here's what he tells us. He says, all authority is given to me. Uh, And who are we to tell a resurrected, glorified Savior any different? And it's the resurrection of Jesus that enables us to minister in his name, to invite all people from every nation, every tribe and tongue, even the English-speaking residents of Mineral Wells, Texas, to repent and believe in him. So friends, if Jesus never rose from the dead, then this is just cheap religious entertainment, and it's, it's kind of boring entertainment if that's all it is. But if it is true that Jesus is alive... If it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, then that carries authority over you. Jesus lays claim on you and on your life. So don't be like these chief priests who were so stubborn they refused Christ in the face of indisputable evidence because they had already decided they didn't want him in the first place. 
Don't be like the soldiers who said, you know what? Gold and silver are more important to me than following Jesus. No, you lay all that aside. Abandon all the treasure of this world in order to get the treasure of knowing Christ. Believe and receive him. Become his follower. Become his disciple and do it today.